This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're chatting with Bomber Moxham. Bomber is probably well known to many of you. After all, he's one of the loveliest and most well-respected men in the sheep world of Western New South Wales. And he's been around for quite a while. Bomber is the owner of Mullingudgery, a merino stud and commercial cattle and sheep grazing property near Ningen. In this episode, you'll hear some really great yarns from the old days and what Bomber reckons is the key to a good merino sheep. You may even get some clues on just how old Bomber is, how he got his name and why the Bogan Bulls are the best rugby team on the Western Plains. Local Land Services District Vet Jill Kelly caught up with Bomber over a pot of tea and some pikelets at the kitchen table at Mullingudgery. So this morning I am talking to Bomber Moxham and Bomber is the owner and manager of Mullingudgery. And a lot of listeners would probably know Mullingudgery because it's really prominently sitting on the southern side of the highway, just about 30 kilometres east of Ningen, and you can't miss it. It's got Mullingudgery emblazoned over the shearing shed roof. So it's pretty prominent, and Bomber's been around a long time, so a lot of people <laughs> will know him. So thanks, Bomber, for talking to me. As long as I say the right things, I'll keep talking to you. Well, that's the beauty of a podcast. We can always delete out the swear words right. and, <laughs> and the stories that might get you into trouble. Okay. <laughs> so, first of all, I'd like to know, how did you get the name Bomber? I really don't know how I got the name Bomber, but my sister does, but I won't tell you. Ah, oh, so it's not so much a secret as something you'd like to not reveal. My sister, who's still alive, lives at Ningen on a property there. She is the only one that knows how I really got the name, but I still don't know how it transferred from me being a little guy to when I had to go away to school in 1941. Ah, so your sister might have to be the subject of our next podcast so we can get to the bottom of the mystery. (laughs) So, Bomber, it's a pretty rude question, so I'm not going to ask your age, but I am going to ask you how long you've been at Mullingudgery for. Well, that's very tactful. Only 89 years. (laughs) Oh, so you're nearly local. (laughs) No, seriously, 89 years is a fair innings. You would have seen a lot change in agriculture and in this district over that time. Tell me what it was like in the early days, as far back as you can remember. What was Mullingudgery like? Up until I was sent away to school in 1941, when the war was on, when the Sydney people were sending their kids out into the bush to escape any Japanese bombings of Sydney, (laughs) my father and mother sent me and my sisters to school in Sydney, (laughs) so (laughs) probably hoping we'd get bombed anyway. (laughs) So they didn't have a very good succession plan at that point? (laughs) No. So what were you running back then? We founded a start at Beamery Burke in 1923 
because we went broke in 1930 when I was born, which was a bad sign, and <laughs> we transferred the stud to Mullingudgery because we had to just walk off Beamery Station, which is out from Burke there. It was a big place, 150,000 acres, I think. Yeah, and come down to Mullingudgery. And so that was a sheep stud you're talking about, a merino yeah, stud? merino sheep stud, yeah. And so its anniversary is in two years' time. So we're going to have a big shindig here for the 100th anniversary of the Mullingudgery Merino Stud. Oh, how exciting. <laughs> I think I've just, maybe I've wrangled myself an invite. We'll see. Uh, depends how you get on with this. <laughs> <laughs> depends how good my questions are. <laughs> and so was Mullingudgery the same size back then as it is today or has it grown or shrunk in size? Uh, yes, we've grown in size because we annexed a neighbour that used to split us in two. It made it very good to operate the whole system. It actually runs out over two creeks, the Balerengar Creek running on the north of us and the Gunnybar Creek and then we actually have a paddock that joins the Dingan-Warren Road exactly north and south along skinny place, yeah. Back then when the stud started and when you were young, what sort of merinos were they? Well, we used to being at Beamery, they bred big plain sheep which cut a lot of wool. You're obviously incredibly passionate about merino sheep. I know that because the number plate on your car is merino. <laughs> um, what do you love about merinos and Tell me the characteristics today that make Mullingudgery sheep the best. <laughs> it still has, the philosophy hasn't changed. Big straight-backed sheep with covering down their legs. Uh, plenty of wool. But we've come back in micron from 23 microns to 21 and tried to keep the size and the covering. What does covering down the legs mean? If you... Shearing a sheep, and you can cut that bull off, the, particularly the legs and the belly, it'll pay for the shearing. And so bare-legged sheep are no good to us. We don't like them. And so Mullingudgery sheep are pretty prominently displayed. You know, you go to the Ninganag Expo and different shows around the place. You're still take and show off your sheep at different shows and things like that today? Yeah, mostly local shows, yeah. We've won quite a lot of wool championships, of course, in the last few years. And do you have buyers buy your sheep from all over? Do people come from everywhere? No, mostly only Western districts and sort of into Queensland, but mostly just still Western Division. And is that just because that type of sheep just suits that environment so well? We hope so, <laughs> Well, you've got a, nearly 100 years of breeding history to go on. You're still going, so they must be doing something right. Yeah. And the other thing, we don't have an auction. We have an annual field day and we don't ever have an auction. We just have grades of rams and all our ram clients haven't got a bit against each other and they enjoy the day and so do we. They go away happy and so do we stay happy. That's a good philosophy, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. So your sheep obviously have been quite sought after historically. I know at one point 
you were invited to gift some Mullingudgery merinos to the, India. To India. Can you, yeah, yeah tell me about that. Uh, yep. Took some sheep down to Dubbo Show and Sales, as we usually do. Roughly what year was this? What? It would be about 25 years ago. Okay. And all of a sudden, the agents knocked them down to India and one ram to Mexico and one ram to Romania. And so I was embarrassed because I thought we had the best sheep in the world. Why sell to these other countries? They might in time endanger our wool industry. So I vowed then that in three years' time I'd follow them up and see if we'd done any damage. And so we ended up going to India and then the Indians were so pleased with them they got a special grant and we sold more rams uh, privately to India at a special camp set up they had in Rajasthan for uh, our merinos for, uh, of course, getting the AI sheep onto theirs to improve them. But when we inspected them in three years' time, we found that the sheep industry in India at that time consisted of every village and little town on the way to the big place, consisted of about 25 terrible-looking sheep with a kid of about eight years old and a stick mustering them. (laughs) So your genetics probably weren't, they were good, but they probably weren't good enough to improve the ewe flock. (laughs) They weren't going to do anything, so that panicked. But an interesting thing happened is that the one that went to Mexico, we followed that up and we learnt a lot in a roundabout way, which is interesting. We had a dreadful trouble with the Mexicans, uh, Department of Ag, and uh, they couldn't quite find the ram. Anyway, they sent us up to Gustavo Moritos in uh, the north of Mexico, and we found this really nice couple that were growing pretty good sheep. And uh, anyway... <laughs> They laughed when we told them how we're here to find out what happened to that ram and did he do any good and did he do any damage, what happened. And Gustavo laughed and said, I think you'll find that they barbecued him (laughs) (laughs) down there in Mexico City. (laughs) And that was okay. We couldn't do anything about that, but we never contacted the department again there. But the interesting thing is that Gustavo and Marita said they were going up to Texas at San Angelo where they had this interesting test centre set up and would we like to come with them? And we said it's because they buy their rams at that stage in Texas. So we said yeah. So they drove us up to San Angelo where we found this enormous about a hundred studs in setups that they've been running since 1948. I was embarrassed because I found they'd been micron testing their sheep since 1948. We're just 
starting the arg argument to get our wool tested, then by EWP, which was the first one to sell wool by tested uh, measurement. Yeah, so the Americans, even though they had quite a globally insignificant sheep flock, were doing more yeah. technologically advanced things than you guys were out here. I was embarrassed. I had to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> the sheep were good. And the interesting thing is that they did one more measurement and I thought, why didn't I think of it? They measured the breech sample from the rams. So a mid-side sample and a breech sample, guess what you've got? If you've got those two even, you've got an even fleece all over. Which is what you're aiming for. I couldn't get back quick enough to test our size mid-side sample and breach. And as I understand it, we're still the only ones that do our size, mid-side and breach. And boy, got rid of any sheep that had way out microns. And it really has, I think, given us a really good even fleece. So fancy learning that in America. I had to shut up because we were the leaders of the wool industry in the world and I felt very small. Uh, it sounds like you've done a lot of travelling and research and learnt heaps to bring home to your sheep, Bomber. Yep, and uh, Tom and I went back a couple of years ago to Texas. And Tom's your son? Yes, yep. sorry, Tom. <laughs> Tom's your son who's home on the farm yeah. helping? He's a solicitor, a solicitor as well, so I've got to watch what I do. And we went back and unfortunately the uh, San Angelo test centre in Texas has closed down and they're decimated. There's only about maybe 10 American Merino, well, Rambolet-type studs left and their wool's gone yellow and gluggy and so we couldn't do anything there and moved on. And so is that just because consumers in America prefer to eat beef and they wear synthetic fabrics and things that just all fell apart? Is that why? Yeah, and it gets worse than that. The rest of the blasted Texas is Dorper. Oh, dear. They're not really sheep, are they? <laughs> no. <laughs> so that's what's happened. The wool industry, they had really good, beautiful wool, merino sheep, when we looked 25, 30 years ago. As I said, the insult is I'd been testing their wool for measurement since 1948 and we never knew it. Yeah, wow. So Australia remains the leader in merino wool production. We are safe. We haven't exported enough Mullingudgery genetics to make a difference around the world. That's right. We're, we're still going okay. <laughs> and so it's not just um, sheep that you've really proudly bred here over many years. You've also had a, a fair crack at cattle. Tell me about the cattle. Uh, yep. We've had a shorthorn stud since 1923 be slowly disbanded it before these droughts and everything hit. We haven't had the stud going for about 10 years, but we just uh, run our own shorthorn still and just buy in bulls. And because the demand went, as everyone knows, it's just ended up buying bulls at Dubbo each year. Yeah. How did you attack the drought in terms of keeping your both your cattle and your sheep genetics. How? What did you do through the drought to maintain things here? Well, 
We thought we were pretty good. We had all this feed and hay, hay buried. In, and uh, we had an, enough feed, we thought, with keeping the cattle on. And so that used a lot of hay. And we had a lot of grain stored in ground buried. Of course, a few silos, they don't count. They're gone in a few minutes. But the bulk of the, the grain, mostly oats, was buried and came out beautifully. Uh, and so we felt pretty secure for a while and then the drought just got worse and worse and we ended up cleaning up every skerrick of grain and hay we had. It was hard to prepare for the three years that it went on, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So we had enough feed for about 18 months but then the, our luck ran out and we had to buy it ever since. Yeah, and you sent some stock away on adjustment? Yeah, we had a bit of bad luck there because they went to a place at Louth and we didn't know about the... The weed, Pimalia? Yeah, and that killed half of them. And yeah. so we lost 120 and was just dreadful trying to get them back before they died. It was just absolutely shocking turnout. And I should have rung Lillian before I went out there. <laughs> the, the, the worst phone call in my life that I didn't make was not ringing Gillian because she'd done a paper two years earlier before we sent them out. If I'd have rung her, we wouldn't have sent them out there. But we picked the worst paddock in Australia for about 300 head of nice shorthorns and we lost half of them. Oh, I feel bad about that bomber. Anyway, I guess we all hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> it would have been good if I'd made that phone call to this lovely girl I'm talking to. <laughs> oh, I'm always on the end of the phone if you need me. <laughs> I know back in the day, Mullingadgery was a bit of a hub of activity. I know the rail line stopped here. There was a like a rail station, and you used to have all sorts of fun times here. Can you tell me about the good old days at Mullingadgery? Oh, yeah. I had three sisters and we used to get into trouble because we'd run over to the railway and watch the trains come and uh, they used to come from Sydney and they'd arrive here at lunchtime, about 12 o'clock, and then they'd go past back to Sydney at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, we had a shunting siding, we had a wool dump where you could load our wool. We always had to load our own wool and send it away in S-trucks. We got about 51 bales, I think, in each S-truck to Sydney. And, of course, they had stock trains going through on Sunday. And so people from all around the district, Mullingutry district, brought their sheep and loaded their cattle down to Homebush markets and, of course, their wool. So it was very busy. And Mullingudgery used to have like horse sports and sort of different days where people would probably travel out from Ningen and places like that to come? Yeah, we used to have an annual gymkhana, they called it. You know, had horse racing, foot racing. Before that, they uh, used to have the Beeble Bar Cup, which started in about 1888, I think. They had races here. Then it changed to car races. 
as well. Oh, really? <laughs> round, round the, round the track. We never ran over any kids, but we, <laughs> we had some fast sports car that were illegally racing round. Yeah. I was going to say, I reckon WHS might not have existed in those days. That was probably more luck than management. Form. It was. <laughs> I've been visiting you probably at different times for vet work for the last 10 years and I think you've told me over those 10 years that you are semi-retiring or trying to retire and I giggle every time you tell me because you, you're still going as full-blown as ever. But tell me how Mullingadri is running today. Tell me about who you've got on the farm and, and what's happening here today. With my son Tom, after he'd done law with his partner, run a international arbitration system uh, and luckily the part that we bought from Billy Horton Nullabar, which was half the between the two properties that I've said before they work with their electronics and everything there they can do business there so he does that as well part-time but he's mainly in charge now and then, of course, we've got a good stud manager with Scott McMillan. He does all the stud classing and clients classing. We just keep rolling. You spend a bit of time here, a bit of time in Sydney. Which which would you prefer? <laughs> uh, of course, here. But <laughs> it's nice to be able to get away now and again, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Have a bit of time, especially in the drought, I guess. It was probably really nice to get away. Uh, I didn't get away in the drought. But oh, didn't you? You were, you were stuck to the place. Yeah. Someone needed to um, it, feed all those it sheep. Wa- it wa- was the worst drought in history, of course, in my lifetime. It went past the 65, 68 drought here. It was just absolutely, I don't know how I got through it, let alone anyone else. I know how they felt. It's just was absolutely the worst. I've never seen so much dust. And I didn't think that the perennial grasses which we've been able to conserve all these years would get through. That's the panic species and the Mitchell grasses. Unfortunately, their roots go down to about a metre and a half and by a fluke they've lived and we've got all our vegetation back so it's been terrific yeah it looks good they've bounced back well haven't they it's quite incredible what the country can do yep the marshmallow we've got photos of fellas standing in it it's been seven foot high in spots it's just unbelievable and of course we've got oat crops now to try and put away if we get anything again into the pits and cover them up, ready for the next drought. I reckon we should all start preparing for the next drought the minute the last one ends. So that's a really clever bomber and that's probably part of the reason why you're still here 89 years on. (laughs) I'm not sure about that. (laughs) So I think I've run out of questions, bomber, but have you got any other stories or anything else you'd like to tell me? Yeah, on, on the sporting side, of course, I'm a great... I started off with playing... Rugby Union with Warren in about 1953 and unfortunately then Ningen started up. It was the first time to start after the war in 1953 
And then a few years later, Ningen started up, so I changed to Ningen. You can imagine what happened. <laughs> the, oh. the Ningen boys loved me and the Warren boys hated me. <laughs> so, but we, all, we still get on well. Oh, it's always – Western Plains rugby is always a tricky thing to navigate considering that I'm the vet from Canamble, so I've got to be careful in rugby season when I come over and talk to you. It depends who's on top as to how good a smoker I get. <laughs> That's right. We won't talk about Canamble. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, Bogan Bulls all the way. Is, yep. That has influenced which jackaroos you've employed over the years. If they can play rugby, they get a job at Mullingudgery. Is that right? Yeah, it's just – Coincidental. <laughs> oh, just coincidental. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Bomber, I've loved um, chatting to you. I always have not only a nice cup of tea but a good yarn when I sit at your kitchen table. So thanks for sharing a bit of Mullingudgery's history with me and a bit of your history and it's been a really fun time. Yeah, and I'm sorry about my country hour voice. No, I think you've got a, a wonderful voice for radio. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.